The Gundog Notebook Podcast is presented to you by OnX Hunt, crafted to be the number one digital mapping resource for hunters, anglers, and landowners. Download the OnX Hunt app from your phone's app store today and check out onxmaps.com for more inside Onyx. I also want to bring to you Garmin. Build a better dog with devices for tracking and training from obedience to hunting and limiting nuisance barking. Get exactly what you need to make a life with your hunting buddy that much better. Go check out the Garmin Pro 550 Plus. That's what we're using on this side of town. And uh, get yourself ready for the hunting season coming up. Don't have your dog running all out there crazy. Get them well broken in collar condition. That's what we are working on now. Go check them out right now at Garmin.com. The Gun Dog Notebook is also brought to you by Dakota 283 Kennels. Check out the new updated price drops on Dakota283Kennels.com. Use the promo code TGDN10 for 10% off at checkout. Also presented to you by Lion Country Supply, the Gun Dog World's premium gun dog supplier. Check them out now. All right, guys, welcome back to another episode of the Gun Dog Notebook podcast. And I just wanted to give you guys a couple of very special quick announcements coming up. So first and foremost, this weekend is that time Vegas will be on his first grouse hunt up in the woods in North Carolina, um, meeting up with the boys from Project Upland. So look forward to some coverage on that. Also, the weekend following will be our first uh, quail hunt in the Georgia opener. Um, so I'll be hitting my favorite spot in good old Thomasville, Georgia. You know I'm going to be there. And the next day, November 17th, I'll be giving a lecture and a bird dog demonstration at the uh, Prairie Wildlife Arts Festival hosted by Thomasville Center for the Arts. And if you get a chance, pick up Tom number 13 and take a look at my feature magazine article in the Trailblazer section entitled A Sporting Cause. John Michael Sullivan did a phenomenal job um, photographing me, visited my house over this summer. We got a chance to hang out. I got interviewed by Andrea Gatto, so I wanted to thank her and also Miss Miriam uh, Mirzada. Um, at Tomazine Magazine for such a special editorial piece. So guys, if you get a chance, go down to Thomasville and pick up Tom number 13. All right, guys. Here we go with another episode of the Gun Dog Notebook Podcast with Dixie Decoys' Brad Sanders. Check it out now. Welcome back to another episode of the Gun Dog Notebook Podcast. This one is, is going to be a fun one. Um, we've got Brad Sanders, president of Dixie Decoys, on the line. Um, and I'm glad to talk to you, Brad, because I'm in the midst of switching from plastic decoys to more traditional ones. And I kind of want to know what I'm doing <laughs> before I get in there um, and, and learn and hopefully get educated Um you know, on some history and stuff like that, a traditional decoy. So, Brad, how are you, sir? Well, I'm doing very well, and uh, thank you so much for allowing me to uh, to grace grace your uh, your podcast. I'm I'm have to commend you on on what you've done. I've listened to quite a few episodes now, and I really appreciate um, 
your effort and sort of that taking that traditional Southern style uh, to to the topic of, of gun dogs and gun dog training, a, a topic that is near and dear to my heart, and my entire family's heart. So uh, just thanks for for again inviting me on, but also um, just what you're doing with your podcast and, and the message that you're spreading. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Well, thank you. <laughs> um, you know, I'm I'm really, really, really um, excited, and I take a lot of pride um, in just being from the South, man. You know, you 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 you've you've been here a good minute. Um, currently in Australia, which is wild. So you're already into the weekend. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> I uh, I'm 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 right behind you in terms of that, but Brad. The other day, we got into a pretty extensive dialogue about Dixie decoys. And I mean, you you took me through a, a, a lot of just really good information, you know, on, you know, we got in a conversation about form versus performance, you know, function, uh, creative and artistic styles, history and, and all of that stuff. And I really appreciate the academic approach that you um, that you have, you know, so let's get started with, you know, your background upbringing, you know, you, you, you've traveled a bit and, and, you know, found your way to North Carolina. So let's talk about that first. And then I want to, you know, really go down the rabbit hole again with you. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, I, I have to emphasize that I'm, uh, I am but one very, very, very small component of the Dixie Decoys organization. Uh, I appreciate the title president, but that probably overrepresents my role in the company. We are uh, an organization of incredible uh, people that are very committed to the tradition and spirit of waterfowling. Um, so that's you know, it's 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 great to to have the title and everything, but um, you know, I, I just. I will do my best throughout this discussion to sort of represent uh, the people that really make our organization great. So um, myself, I grew up, uh, I was born in, in Peoria, Illinois, and I grew up sort of bouncing back and forth across the border of Illinois and Indiana. I would, I would say that most of my sporting upbringing was in Northwest Indiana, uh, in the farms around there. And most of that came from uh, my grandfather. So uh, we grew up not duck hunting. Um, that was something that, you know, we couldn't afford that. Like the, the, just the, the equipment and the, and the gear burden was just too much for us, but we were small game hunters, primarily squirrels and rabbits and chasing the odd quail. Um, and then, you know, later in, into my teens, uh, our family got in, uh, got into deer hunting and, uh, that was, that was sort of, you know, the, the hunting side of things, fishing was nonstop. It just, we always, if we weren't in the woods chasing squirrels, we were fishing. And when the lakes froze over, we were ice fishing. So it was, that was a big part uh, of my life, but it is, you know, I don't want people to think that I'm, I'm a third generation waterfowler with, you know, ties to some historic uh, duck club. And <laughs> this is not the case, right? Yeah. Uh, as, as is happening more and more, I got, I got bit by the bug later in life. Um, and, and it did not take much, you know, that, that little bit of, of, of ducky venom got in me and, mm -hmm. uh, and I was, uh, I was just got sick with it. And, um, yeah, that's, that's sort of the, how the, you know, my passion evolved into waterfowling. And, and then that sort of melded with just general elements of my personality that are probably, you know, I'm, I'm, 
I'm definitely a romantic and, and as you would know, mm -hmm. I, when I say romantic, I'm not talking like in the, in the sense of like a, you know, uh, a romantic dinner in Paris kind of <laughs> genre. Like it, it, there's a bit of nostalgia, a bit of, a bit of appreciation of natural beauty and, and, uh, the holistic picture of things. And, yep. and, you know, in, in, for example, in waterfowling, it's, or in, in upland hunting as well, it, you know, my outlook would be that it, the, the harvest of the bird is, but, but an inevitable consequence of the larger effort and the larger effort begins, you know, months in advance with, you know, uh, painting and rigging decoys and doing your research and scouting and reading authors and, and, um, and then when you're out there, just to see appreciation of, of one being out in, in God's creation with your friends and, uh, and taking it all in and, and appreciating the gift that the birds are. Again, the inevitable conclusion, obviously you're out there not to just watch the sunrise. You're out there to, to harvest game, mm -hmm. but it's, it's not the, the biggest thing. So that sort of rounds out where, you know, how my upbringing you know, in combination with some of my just evolved personality traits kind of brought us to, to where we are. Yep. Yep. Well, I, and I think that is probably one of the, 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 one of the many things that I liked about you, but one of the things that really stood out to me, um, everything that we spoke about from duck hunting to, you know, using a, a, a certain type of decoy to even the bird dog aspect of it, right? Like you've even mentioned um, that you even carry more traditional style bird dogs, you know, setters and so on and so forth. Um, and, and I just think that's an important part of it. I'm one of those people that though I can appreciate innovation, right? I, I really do. Um I'm, I like learning the old ways of doing things, you know, and, and just kind of capitalizing on that. Um, one thing about me, I am very much so obviously actively engaged in the Internet and the culture of social media, blah, 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 blah. But you know what, man? All of that information that we're practicing now, I've been adamant and in, in, in hopefully trying to prove that a lot of that is found in a good book, man. Seriously. Yeah. <laughs> no, you're, you're not wrong. Um, and, and I think you and I alike would probably take the approach that even though we are, are classically rooted and we have an appreciation for traditions, I don't think either of us are the kind of people that hold our noses up mm -hmm. in sort of a, a puritanical fashion that those who, who might wear modern camouflage or, or might use a certain decoy or, or use a, a semi-auto that we're not of the approach that, Oh, how dare you? You're right. ruining it. Right. You know, uh, we, for us, uh, I don't mean to speak for you, but for me certainly. And, and, and most of the, uh, you know, generally our organization as a whole, we take the approach of this is kind of for us because it, it is the direct intangible connection to our gunning heritage. Mm -hmm. and, and the, so the emphasis then is on the heritage and, and not, not necessarily, you know, it, it's, it's not living in the past, but it's appreciating the past and, and carrying it with us as we move forward. Right. Right. Um, and, and that was one of the things that I got really excited about with Dixie decoys, right? So last matter of fact, um, last episode, um, I was speaking with my good friend, Charlie Jordan, 
He's here in Atlanta. He's done a lot of extensive just hunting around the world, right? And and I think if you guys sat in a room, <laughs> I think y'all yeah. would have a good yeah. time. Um, yeah. But Charlie's a good dude. So I show up at his house, and when I tell you there are just all kinds of just carved decoys, he's got an entire room full of them. I have to send you the pictures and stuff like that. But, I mean, it... it it's almost as if we were walking into kind of like a sanctuary in a lot of ways. You know what I'm saying? As, as far as like the energy that those decoys carry. And we got into a, a very um, almost uh, brainy conversation about the energy that a lot of these traditional decoys carry, um, you know, versus plastic. And this podcast, you know, let me say this is not a is not a bash on plastic decoys. I'm just in it for, like you said, the larger picture. So I'm really interested in finding a set of decoys that I can use, my kids will be able to use, and I'll take with me for the rest of my life that I've put the work in, but they also carry that that spirit and soul. You know what I'm you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, well, that's probably a good segue uh, for those of your listeners who are unfamiliar with us um, that, you know, to probably just talk about the decoys themselves for yeah. a minute. Yeah. Um, and so what you up listening up to this point, you might get the perception that I'm talking about, you know, um, their new decoys, but they would be hand carved wood. And, and, and that's great. And uh, we often get that mistake, but actually our decoys are, are made of um, rigid urethane foam, mm-hmm. two part expanding foam. So the, the, you know, to sum the entire sort of concept of the decoy up is, is, you know, a bit of, in our slogan, a new kind of old, right? So it's mm-hmm. a new decoy with all of the advantages of today's technology and, and, and what we'll be releasing here with our new Durabil line. Um, it, some of the most advanced foam decoys ever produced, but it all comes in a traditional package. So the idea is that when you hold the decoy in, in your hand, you can see and literally feel in your fingertips every single knife stroke of our carver, uh, Keith Hendrickson, and all of the wood grain. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is that is to sort of, you know, I, people ask about the decoys, and 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 I, I say I don't know that we actually sell decoys. Of course we do. They're they're, they're waterfowl decoys, but. They're, they're much more than that. They're vessels for conversation is what mm-hmm. I, what I call them. Right. And, and, you know, this is what well, we can get into this later, but that wood grain in there and all of those knife marks are not for the ducks. And we're, we are very open about that. Right. I don't try to claim that that level of detail in there is, is somehow required. And that makes the, the decoys themselves more effective. No, all of the technology is in the foam itself in what happens under the decoy and how it's balanced uh, to ride and everything, but the, the surface of the decoy, the style of how it would, the original one was carved and now we mold, um, that is all so that you can put a, a, a manifested, you know, tangible, uh, connection to your gunning heritage. You going out tomorrow, hunting in the marsh, just, just think about everything that had to happen for the hundreds, if not thousands of years that built up to that moment in time where mm-hmm. you're sitting out there with your decoys, whatever decoys they are, you know, plastics, uh, foam, wood, whatever they are, that moment in time, that moment in time is, is built upon the, you know, 
generations and generations and generations of gunning history, right? Well, what our decoys do is provide you a direct and tangible connection to a part of that and to probably, again, this connects to sort of that, that appreciation of romanticism, that period, you know, post the Migratory Bird, Bird Act, uh, where gun, market gunning had ended, and then you, you have the classical writers sort of, you know, writing about those experiences and, and talking about the way it used to be. And this is, you know, in the, in the 1920s and 1930s. Mm-hmm. And that's really the, the period that our, our decoys come from, that, that appearance. Um, they are, they're sold generally uh, as blank foam decoys for the customer to finish themselves. We offer uh, and, and we have published uh, all of our paint patterns from Keith himself with the codes uh, for you to get um, get the paints that you need. And the specific paint styles that we publish are, uh, they complement the traditional nature of the decoy. We don't claim that this is the quote-unquote way uh, that, that the decoy would have been historically painted. Of course, that would matter upon which which person carved the decoys and what region they were from. But our belief in the style that we pursue is a more simple gunning, uh, what is called a block, uh, block style paint scheme where it's clean cut lines, bold primary colors, leave out feather detail. Uh, speculums are added, uh, even though that is probably not the, you know, the most realistic interpretation uh, of the decoy uh, of, of the actual duck. We know that when ducks sit on the water, their, their speculum is not always showing, mm-hmm. but you know, sort of artistically and stylistically it complements um, the, the, the species. And, and what you have is, you know, you have an opportunity for somebody to without spending literally the, the opportunity, if you want one of these you know, highly desirable classical decoys, tens to sometimes hundreds of thousands of dollars. Uh, what what were <laughs> what were originally built as mere tools are now, you know, it's highly appreciated folk art. Right. Um, and nobody, very few people can afford those things. But this is the opportunity for you to have not only have that style in your living room, which mo- a, a lot of people do. They they buy our, our decoys as display pieces, but then also to take take those decoys out and hunt with them. And, and for some people that means just that, that one or two really special decoys that, which in my case, you know, that I, I'll like, I'll paint with my daughter and, and put out in my rig uh, among the others. But, and then, you know, we have customers who have entire massive Eastern North Carolina diver rigs of, of 200 plus decoys uh, of Dixie decoys flowing out there. So it's um, yeah, it's, you know, I think it's a pretty cool opportunity for people to, to sort of have this style and 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 have be able to uh, again tangibly appreciate their past without spending you know hundreds of dollars per decoy to to get hand carved decoys in 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 a historical or a contemporary antique style. Right, right. You know what? You made me think of something just as far as um, just a comparison that I see. Maybe probably analogy is a better word, but. These days, you know, we've got guys and we got in a conversation. I want to hear about that boss gun that you mentioned, too. But we've got guns like that. Guys are going out and, and buying these, I mean, just really nice double guns, right? You've got companies like Orvis that, um, you know, are really interested in the double gun culture and, and taking and, and using guns from 
you know, uh, you know, uh, best British guns and things like that from way back in the day, right? And this, it, you, you see the guys out here that are shooting auto loaders, and then you see guys much like myself going out and and, and shooting ducks with with two barrels, right? <laughs> and it's, and it's yeah. you know, and and we've got these you know heirloom pieces, and I think about it, and your decoys kind of remind me of that, right? Like you've got you've got a heritage series, and and you and even your blanks the work that goes into it, you know, you can sit them on, on, on your mantle or anything like that. And they become these works of art around the house. But I just see myself grabbing, you know, for me, I'm an artist. It's almost like me grabbing a painting off the wall and, and taking it to the field, you know, like. <laughs> and how cool is that though, right? Like, yeah. you know, you spend the time and, and you, you tell your story in that medium. And, and I've seen some of your beautiful, beautiful work. Thank you. I, I just don't know of an opportunity uh, aside from maybe, I don't know, there's like a pop-up art gallery where mm-hmm. you could, you know, pull something off of your wall, walk down to downtown Atlanta and, and display it. Right. I, I don't, I don't know that sort of traditional mediums of art have that opportunity, but with duck decoys, you absolutely do. And, and look, I'm sitting in a room right now. I have three decoys that I've painted that sit on a shelf when, cause it's not duck season here, but this previous season they came out with me and, and they got hunted, Yeah, you know? And, and so they're, they are working hard, hard working gunning decoys. That's something that we pride ourselves on, especially with the new Durabil line mm-hmm. uh, is the near indestructibility of our foam decoys. And, mm-hmm. and that's what we believe is one of the, the historical advantages of foam decoys over, you know, modern plastic decoys. Um, but yeah, a lot of our customers, customers will do that. They'll, they'll, you know, they'll, they'll have these as shelf pieces and then they take them out and they, they hunt over them. Um, so it's, it's a pretty cool, pretty cool opportunity, uh, for people to tell their story, which you do with your art, uh, painted on canvas or, or paper or Mm -hmm. whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Um, but for just your your everyday waterfowler to, to to lay some simple paint down, and then and and all of those paint strokes, all of those brush strokes, tell an individual story about that specific moment in time, what that person was doing in their shop at that moment, and and all of that feeds into your lar- larger waterfowling novel that you're writing about yourself as you as you sort of progress in your life. Yep. 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 I mean, that is, that's really what it's about, man. So when I started the Gundog Notebook, I started off trying to tell a story. And what that story was, was me getting my Labrador and learning how to train, right? And I wanted to write, I wanted to write myself basically a training manual. So for my next dog, I would kind of have a, a, a guidebook, right? But then it started growing into being this larger thing. And now we're here. Well, with the decoys, one thing that I kind of thought about, um, and, and I want to elaborate, you just keep giving me ideas. But one thing that I kind of thought about was the fact that in a lot of ways, you know, for what I'm looking for out of my lab, we don't do a lot of hardcore training anymore, right? Like my pointer, he's, we're still working. He's a young dog. But with my lab, I mean, he's he's steady. He retrieves, you know, doves and ducks the way I need him to do it. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, I mean, I, I just pretty much say, look, load up in a truck. Let's hit a marsh or, or let's go to our little, you know, wood duck spot and let's hunt. You know, it's not a lot of training. So I was I'm also looking for another way 
to continue that narrative with my dog, you know? And, yeah. And I think yeah. this is one way to do it. Oh, absolutely. And, and you know, that is the, the mere virtue of you training your own dogs uh, is you're, you're invested in that process. And similar to you painting the decoys, you know, every single now that you've, you've trained your lab, every retrieve that that lab does is a consequence of your efforts. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and all of, again, just going back to the, the think of how many sub stories have been written to get to that moment. And that's, that's really what it's all about, right? Like mm-hmm. that's, that's what, what is such an emphasis of, of our brand uh, over many others is that we are all about the story yep. and, and the story that's being written right now. And then you recognizing all of the stories that have been written to get to this point, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that's what makes our, our tradition is, is it's the, the, com- the, uh, the composite or the aggregate of, of all of these, these stories that have been written, right. you know, and, and, but when I say written, I don't mean actually written in, in, you know, online or, or even in, in a, in a notebook, but just these, these moments that happen that, that influence you, that, that shape who you are and, and get you to this moment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, and, and so now I want to kind of hop on to another big thing, you know, historically, right. I want to, Really poke your brain on, on this. We talk about the stories that have more or less been created up until this point, right? I am really interested in in whatever knowledge you know that you have to share about the Aboriginal decoy carvers, because um, you're in Australia right now. I don't I don't know if we yeah we did say that earlier, but also you know what are some in, in addition to that, what are some of the unique little stories that you've kind of held on to and, and, and kept and, and thought were kind of interesting um, about the, the, the past de- the decoy carvers of the past. What, what's going on with that? Yeah, a- absolutely. All great questions. I think that just to provide your listeners a little bit of context, to understand why I'm in Australia right now. Uh, I'm my, my day job is uh, I'm a active duty Marine. Uh, and mm-hmm. so I'm currently posted here in Australia with my family, um, going on two and a half years out of a three year tour. So we'll be coming back to the States in June, but anyway, that's, cool. that's why I'm in <laughs> Australia. Dixie decoys is located in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. Um, so if anybody's thinking about, uh, starting a decoy or really any other company, I would advise against doing it mere months <laughs> before you're about to go to the other, uh, you know, the other side of the world, literally. Well, we gonna hold um, it down for you here, right? Okay. Yeah, yeah. So it's been an interesting dynamic, uh, and you know, just as a as a personal and professional development uh, for myself, but really the entire company, it's been a, a definitely a a period of growth. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'll say that. So, mm-hmm. um, but anyway, that's why I'm in Australia, and. Uh, I am not an Australian waterfowling expert by any means, but I have been put in touch with some fantastic, fantastic people. And I will tell you that um, Australian waterfowlers uh, just go above and beyond, um, have gone above and beyond to sort of accommodate me. And they're just so fiercely, 
fiercely proud of their their tradition uh and some of that is uh, i tried as best as i could and i probably didn't nearly give it the the justice it deserves but i tried to tell some of those stories in our in our video trilogy dixie down under which you can find on youtube if you just search dixie down under or it's it's on our instagram and and uh and Facebook page as well. Yeah. So I want to get to that but, too, but go ahead. Yeah. 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 We'll come back to that. But, uh, you know, getting to the, uh, the Australian waterfowl decoy tradition, I am not the expert here. I have just, you know, one of these amazing Australians that I've been put in touch with is uh, a gentleman called, uh, John Byers. Uh, he, along with Hugh Lavery wrote a book. Uh, it literally, it's called 20,000 years of duck decoys, the reference book to Australian decoys. So I'm, uh, I'm no decoy expert, uh, in, in the States or in Australia, but I'm just, it's the thing that I am passionate about. I just, I'm, I'm fascinated with it. So, uh, and, and again, just being that sort of historical romantic, him and I get along swimmingly. Um, but he, he, uh, he wrote this book. Um, in, 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 um, partnership with, with Hugh Lavery. And it goes all the way back to the Aboriginal history of Australian, uh, waterfowl decoys. And, and really the concept of a decoy that far back was not at all what we think about it. It was today. The, the idea it was to basically imitate not so much, uh, in some instances, of course, not so much the, the waterfowl themselves, but the waterfowl predators, because that would elicit a behavior from the target duck species, yeah. uh, which would make them more huntable. So like the, the boomerang, for example, would be thrown in the air uh, over a, a flock of wood ducks per se. And their oh. wood ducks are actually called main, the main goose. Um, it, it makes them sort of uh, bunch up uh, and, and crouch down uh, the strength and numbers bit. Really? And then, and then, yeah. And then the Aboriginal hunters could, could close distance uh, to, to uh, harvest harvest the game at that point, and then and then of course you know moving into when the Brits uh, arrive in Australia, they bring with with them the English waterfowling tradition and some of some of those you know using of course the the use of live uh, duck decoys. John uh, talks about this in um, in one of the videos. He, he talks about the the rich history of. You know, market gunning was massive here, just like it was in the United States. And um, and they, you know, the Australians came to a similar realization that that we did in, in North America, that this is not sustainable. So uh, they outlawed it in, in a similar fashion that we did. And, and then, you know, the progression of Australian waterfowling through through the 30s and 40s. And, and as John puts it, probably the heydays in the 40s and 50s. Um, but, uh, you know, it's uh, it is. The Australian um, waterfowlers share a very similar past to North American waterfowlers, and and it is a uh, hunting in Australia. Aside from the species and and the the shooting environments, which are just just almost undescribably gorgeous. Mm-hmm. Um, aside from those differences, the experience is principally the same, right? Hunting hunting the Pacific black duck, uh, it it. It flies like a mallard. It talks like a mallard. It acts like a mallard, um, and, and and it decoys like a mallard. It's it's Australia's premier game bird, um, and you know decoy tactics generally you know the same. They one thing that I I, I haven't seen here because there's only one um, native Australian diving duck, the hardhead. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't do like I'm more you know aligned with in coming from Eastern North Carolina that you know there's 
layout boats with 300, 300 decoys is not really a thing here. Um, so it's slightly different in that, but in terms of your puddle duck hunting, it's, it's very similar. Okay. 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 That's interesting. Now I want to backtrack a little bit. You caught my attention going right back real quick to the Aboriginal hunters when they were throwing a boomerang and stuff like that. If you're familiar, cause I want, I'm going to actually get that book. Um, Soon, matter of fact, what tools were they using to to actually get off? Because if you've got all these ducks bunched up, were they using like bow and arrow? Were they using nets? Like how how was that working? Yeah, again, I'm going to have to to okay to, like qualify myself as, <laughs> as not an expert. Yeah. Um, just my, based upon my conversations uh, uh, with with John, um, and he again he references your specific question in the video that, that we put together. Mm-hmm. Uh, with uh, they so you know they they threw boomerangs at him, they threw uh, spears at him, and and other traditional hunting means. But I, I don't I don't presume to be an Aboriginal historian okay. uh, in in the least sense, especially there their you know nomadic hunting tendencies um uh yeah not at all but uh, I, w- I would encourage people to, to check out the book uh, yeah. if they're interested in that i'm gonna i'm gonna go find that um that's an interesting thing i didn't mean to put you on the spot but i, I just no, it just made me think good. like huh how would you do that so interestingly enough, so the, the use of drones uh, relative to waterfall hunting mm-hmm. uh, is is legal in in Victoria and South Australia. Um, of course, you know, duck hunting in in uh, West Australia, New South Wales, uh, and Queensland has been outlawed for some time, but uh, in Victoria and in um, South Australia, it's it's still very very popular. Um, so the the getting to the use of drones, it, it's not it hasn't been legislated against. So particularly, uh, the wood ducks, um, they hang out in these cattle dams, which are, uh, we would call it ponds in the States, but, you know, um, heavy, heavy equipment will form, you know, they'll dig out a, a, a basically a pond and then have these high walls mm-hmm. and that's where they store water for the cattle. Well, the wood ducks hide while well, they hang out on, and, and they, they eat the tiny little, uh, grass seedlings that pop up along the, the water's edge. So something that, that happens here, you know, occasionally is, is the use of, uh, drones to, you know, sort of scout for these things. And it just so happens that when the drone goes over, these wood ducks will tend to congregate and, and they, it actually hunkers them down and keeps them sort of in place, uh, so that you can make your approach for, uh, you know, if you're doing jump shooting, uh, which is, is, kind of popular here yeah um, and something something that i enjoyed it was you know jump shooting by the purists dependent upon yeah i guess it would be akin to like you know pe- people's sentiments about shooting ducks on the water surface mm-hmm. um uh, you know some people think it's unrefined and ungentlemanly but you know um the, the, there's quite a few farmers here who are, are appreciative that the wood ducks are removed because they tend to spoil the water for the cattle and, and those sorts of things. So. Right. Right. Well, I look, man, I, I never knock how people take game as long as, you know, it's ethical. Um, and I guess that's the big dilemma, but I personally don't see a problem with it. Um, yeah, I just don't, I'm not one of those people, <laughs> but um, and, and every culture has their own thing, you know, um, the, the thing with me, I'm, I'm not the type of person 
to, you know, go like shoot a grouse out of a tree or something like that. But I mean, a duck on the water, given I can understand why it's done, you know, um, and even here, man, like, hell, I had to shoot a duck on the water once because it was swimming away, you know, um, and, and we're out doing some stuff. So, I mean, it, it, I, I'm not going to sit here and say I haven't done it before. So I understand why. <laughs> um, and it's just kind of one of those things, you know, and if it's a mutual thing, the farmers appreciate it. Hey, <laughs> get, get, get your feel, I guess. Um, yeah. Yeah. So. You know, now moving forward into, uh, you know, into, I guess, the 19th and 20th centuries and things like that, you know, you've been really inspired by some of the, um, or or Dixie Decoys has been inspired by some of the um, decoy carving schools. Keith Hendrickson, to be specific, has been inspired by it. Um, Talk about you know that and 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 even if you can the design of the old herders decoys and and why those were so popular yeah uh, so uh i i am not the decoy person mm-hmm. of dixie decoys that is keith hendrickson right he yep. is uh, he is the genius behind our decoy style um and uh, I think you you would probably be well served to have an entire series uh, of of podcasts just discussing you know coastal Carolina and coastal Virginia decoys um, with him. So mm-hmm. I will be very careful noting how passionate some people are about um, the history of waterfowl decoys. Similar, you know, some people would be very passionate about the history of duck calls. So I don't presume to be an expert on those things. Right, um, but uh, you know. Relative to Dixie Decoys, uh, read Keith Hendrickson, yes, uh, there are some historical schools of decoy carving that have influenced him, um, particularly, and this is through his own admission, he is heavily influenced by uh, Lee Dudley from Knott's Island or or the Back Bay area of Virginia. Mm -hmm. Um, And and it just, uh, you know, I've been to... Unbeknownst to me at the time when I went there, I've been to Knott's Island in Virginia. In fact, it's so remote that you have to cross. It's in southeast Virginia. Uh, you have to cross into North Carolina and then come back up because it's it's a marsh or it's an island in the middle of marsh uh, that then opens up to, to you know, the, the obviously historic Back Bay. So Keith does not claim that his decoys are or our heritage series are a Lee Dudley decoy that is not at all his particular style is is influenced that you see some of that come through particularly in our logo mm-hmm. um and then also like in in the the decoys themselves that that beautiful swept neck uh that is sort of emblematic of a of a Dudley decoy but there's also elements um in there that, that just from sort of the iconic decoy regions um, of Southeast Virginia and, and the coast of North Carolina, and again, in that sort of 1900 to 1930 uh, range. And, and that's really the, the sort of target style that at least in the, in the heritage series. So our diver and our puddle duck that, that you see, we will, we will be um, releasing another sort of a small duck that will speak to um, you know, bufflehead, teal, um, ruddy ducks 
those sorts of smaller birds and, and we'll try and put out a decoy that, that adequately represents uh, enough attributes of all of them. But those, without revealing too much at this point, um, those decoys will, will carry a, a different style of, of carving, again, a historical style, but it will be from a different region. And that's what you're going to see us do is as we continue to release uh, different different species of decoys that we're going to introduce different schools. And I think that's part of the beauty of the brand is that we're bringing back to life um, these sort of historical styles of, of decoys and, and to, to modern hunters who otherwise maybe would, wouldn't be exposed to the history of that. All the while, again, we, I can't overstate this enough, we're very, very careful to not lay particular claim to any any one one regional decoy or say that ours is representative of that because no that's that would be inaccurate we, we aren't we aren't saying that ours is representative of of this you know particular area um it is our decoys are, are generally emblematic of a, a larger regional approach um to to decoys at a given time in history that's that's the idea there right right well, I mean, but I, I really like how you've you guys have all taken that and, and, and we, you mentioned it earlier, but taken the past and improved on it and made it more modern. And, um, you know, so that I think that's one of the things that I'm really interested in. You found a way to take history, utilize it and, and, and give it back to a newer generation. Right. Um, no, you, you got it. You, you got it. And again, that, that's the slogan, a new kind of old. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So now let's let's get into, I guess, the nitty gritty of, of what it was that we were talking about. So on, you know, leading into that, because we haven't even gotten to your dogs yet, but I want to I do want to hit this subject. The we got into the the conversation of needs versus wants right you know needs versus wants in a decoy and and you guys dixie decoys is is very transparent about not persuading one way or the other but understanding the facts and and the proof you know that lies within using foam decoys you know can you talk about that and if if you remember any of that conversation when it comes to the arguments that manufacturers make, you know, when it comes to plastic decoys versus foam and carved decoys. Yeah, ab- absolutely. So I think it's important to, to understand, a, a, you know, a, a maxim uh, that should be embraced by every duck hunter. And that is that there is no perfect decoy because there is there. Every hunting situation is different. I come from a, a, a base of thought that suggests that, you know, you should hunt the best quality uh, decoy that you can afford for your given situation. And that means your financial situation, where you hunt, how you hunt, what your target species is. We believe, based upon our, uh, our hunting conditions, which are, are typically – big open water uh, in, in the rivers and sounds of eastern North Carolina, um, that that a, a heavier decoy, specifically targeting divers, is is it it just performs better on bigger open water. Um, that is not gonna work for people who are trying to lug in two dozen decoys in muck up to their hips uh, 
you know, to their tiny little wood duck hole. It's not going to work. Um, you know, and there's decoys for that, but in, in our, in our estimation, and, and I think the history supports this bigger open water, a, a heavier decoy and ours weigh about two pounds a piece. Uh, and that's not even at the heavy end of the scale to compared to some sort of what I would call durable decoys. Um, they just, they ride significantly better. Hollow plastic decoys are traditionally, um, you know, something counting against them is that as the, even small ripples lap up against them, it, it knocks the side of the decoy and you get that, you know, you can almost hear the decoy spread before you can see the decoys. Uh, they're, they're very noisy. Well, foam doesn't have that. And I think sort of a, an acknowledgement uh, of the superiority of foam decoys over your your hollow plastic, your blow molded decoys, is that you see so many of those manufacturers now filling them with foam. And, and to me, that's a tacit admission of the superiority uh, of foam decoys, right? Mm-hmm. We're just, we recognize that you, you can't sink them, you can shoot them. Uh, they are, they are maintainable. So that's why you brought up herders earlier. And that, that's just a series of podcasts. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. But that is why you have, you know, herders decoys or wrestle decoys. Some of these other, you know, iconic and, and now, uh, they're no longer business, but these iconic foam decoy manufacturers from, from Ohio, these decoys are made in, in the sixties, in the seventies. Uh, and people making making their own foam decoys out of either EPS, which you might you call it styrofoam, mm-hmm. uh, or or expanding urethane foam. These decoys are 30, 40 years old, and they're still getting hunted. And and that's because you know you can you can repair them, you can apply a wrestle coating or or, or burlap uh, coat to them, uh, and and you know a burlapped foam decoy. There's just there's probably nothing stronger. Uh, there's probably no stronger piece of, of waterfowl hunting gear, you know, gun, clothing, decoy, whatever it is. A burlapped foam decoy is about as, as nuclear bomb proof as you're going to get. Mm-hmm. Um, so so there's that. But again, it ultimately it's, it it depends on what your your hunting situation is. And and then, you know, we get into the that that argument can be applied to the the style and the sort of the paint scheme of the decoy. So. I think this is what you're getting at. One of the arguments that we have to contend with is, is generally people appreciate our our sort of traditional style and how the decoys look. But the very first thing that that people who are unfamiliar with the history of decoys, especially Carolina and Virginia decoys, uh, the very first thing they'll say is, "Why doesn't that decoy have eyes?" Um, and and so we've actually written an article uh, about you know blind they're calling they're called blind decoys why don't they have eyes well because historically you know when you look at uh the these iconic carvers it it was it wasn't until after the market gunning era when really you start to see an artistic approach to gunning decoys these were tools literally they were handmade tools to sold to uh to gun clubs to to you know sportsmen's clubs sold to market hunters and the idea was do something that is cheap that is easily uh you know i can replicate this quickly and easily and uh and my time spent on one decoy is is 
as little as possible. And a lot of that comes down to the paint. So getting back to our block style paint scheme, you know, our, our argument is that, well, I mean, there's, there's over 200 years of gunning success using bold primary and simple colors. The idea of incorporating photorealism into a decoy is it's patently modern. Mm-hmm. There, there's similarly camouflage, right? Like when you look at the, the entire course of human history, and, and I don't mean nomadic hunting, but organized hunting. Uh, I read this, this article one time and brought up a fantastic point, right? From the Egyptians to the Romans, uh, the hunt was probably the most formal affair that you could, you could undertake. Well, it was, it was ceremonial, yeah. Uh, and, and so that's why, you know, you had a tire to match. Um, the, the use of camouflage is, is just, it's modern and I'm not decry. I'm not saying that you shouldn't use, you absolutely should. If that's what your thing, you know, if you, if, if you need that, right. but you know, to decoys, feather detail and head flocked heads and, and, uh, the detail of eyes is, is a very modern phenomenon. Now, some people would say, and, and I would, I would concur with them you know even very old decoys had eyes yes absolutely i'm not trying to say that all old decoys did not have eyes the again going back to the the regional decoys that we were going after most did not incorporate the detail of eyes because the thinking was this is a tool there's going to be hundreds of these set out and if the if the duck can get close enough to see that there's eyes or not and make that determination well, I don't know why I haven't shot it with my punt gun yet. You know? <laughs> right. So that that's the idea. The you know, getting back to sort of the the uh, the argument against our decoys, if if you want to call it that, would be why why doesn't it have eyes? Well, because this is the style and, and point one and point the, the the style we're going after. Point two is it's not necessarily required. Oh well, and and the follow up will be. Uh, well, my ducks, I love that phrase, my ducks. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. I didn't, I didn't know that you owned, you owned the flyway, but apparently you do. Um, so my ducks need this and my ducks need that. And these ducks would never decoy into those. And that's fine. Right. I, I, I think that people legitimately, um, believe that and, and they'll follow up statements like we have to, you know, they have to have feathers on it. They have to have this. The, I think that's that's acceptable to the point of they have to have X, Y, and Z so that I feel comfortable comfortable about it. Because I and and I encourage any of anybody who's listening to this, please correct me. I like you would help me do my research for me. I have not been able to find an academic, peer reviewed. Uh, uh, paper by a uh, waterfowl biologist that studies the efficacy of one particular style of decoy over another. In fact, I'd, I can't even fathom a way that you would actually experiment against that hypothesis, right? Right. Uh, so what we don't have is the basis for anybody to make a factual claim that you have to have X, Y, and Z, right? Right. What we do know is that ducks see shapes, that's why, uh, that's why, you know, uh, hunting the Chesapeake Bay or something like, uh, Jeff Coates, Captain Jeff Coates, for example, makes his, his massive 
scoter decoys. And the idea is to, to just catch the duck's vision from a long way off to get them to turn in your direction, right? Uh, even, you know, on the, on the Great Lakes, mallard decoys that are, they're, they're massive. They're, they're the size of goose decoys. So ducks see, you know, they, they'll see large objects. They see colors. They see the UV spectrum slightly different than we do. That's, that's acknowledged by the pro, the, the production of, of paints that are, you know, that reflect different colors and lights based upon the UV spectrum. Mm-hmm. So we know those things. That's, that's irrefutable, right? But what we don't know is that a flocked head actually makes a difference or that, that feather detail actually makes a difference. I think what it does is it makes the difference in the hunter's mind, mm-hmm. which is important, right? That, that's very important. Your comfort is important. And if that makes you comfortable, then you should hunt that decoy. Brad Sanders from Dixie Decoys is not saying that it's unnecessary and therefore you shouldn't use it. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying you absolutely should if you believe based upon your conditions that that is required. What I'm asking you not to do is make a claim that it is required because there is no academic peer-reviewed evidence that suggests that. What we have though is 200 years of gunning history that says a a simple black and white canvas back or a a mallard painted with the bold primary colors does it, it's been working for you know more ducks have been shot over those style decoys than most of these hunters have ever even seen you know mm-hmm. when you consider the life of of the decoy so we're we're our approach is we're going to go with the historical record in the absence of scientific data. We're going to go with the historical record and we are comfortable with that because our comfort is predicated upon a connection to the past. Your comfort might be predicated upon, I need to know that these ducks are given the most realistic presentation that they can possibly be given. And if that's what you need and that makes you comfortable, then by all means, hunt over that decoy just don't say that it's required because that's not factually supported right right all right guys so i want to share with you guys a new feature from onyx hunt photo waypoints feature so combined with customizable icons and colors as well as the ability to take detailed notes within each shareable waypoint this new feature elevates the usefulness of waypoints as a tool while in the field and scouting from your home Additionally, your photos stay private until and unless you decide to share them with a friend. So, while I got my good old Dixie decoy out there painted and looking good, I will be taking photos and adding them to the waypoints and sending them to all my good buddies that want to hunt the Iron Throne. So check out Onyx Hunt now. Use the promo code GDN20 at checkout. I, I definitely align with that, man. Um, you know, it, it's a, it's about getting out there and... and seemingly making our lives easier, I guess. Um, in addition to having something that you take ownership of. I mean, for me, I've got a, a, a bag full of, you know, plastic decoys in the closet right now that honestly, I could care to, you know, care to send about. <laughs> if I'm being totally honest. Um, and, and I want something more if I'm going to be, you know, as involved with this, you know, and, and that's kind of where I'm at. I mean, and it, and I, and from what I even understand, 
for puddle ducks, you know, what does it really take that many decoys to, to even bring them in? Like, what are some of those things that you're noticing there in using Dixie decoys? Let's say the 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 wood duck here, right? How do how do you think that they respond to the decoy to Dixie decoys? If I were to put out say three four, because you're not going to carry a whole bunch of them anyway because of weight and things like that. So what have you found as far as response? Yeah. So you in your let's talk about your hunting scenario. So you're talking. Uh, Georgia wood duck hole mm-hmm. um, in, in the middle of a, of a pine forest. I'm, right. I'm imagining. Yes, sir, am exactly. I speaking? Am I, I'm, I'm right there with you. You hit the All nail right. on the head. Bam. So your specific scenario, I'm not going to make a claim that a, a heritage series wood duck is any more effective in your wood duck hole than a, a you know, a fancy photorealistic flocked head plastic decoy. Mm-hmm. I, I'm simply not going to do that. Uh, because I, I don't think that there's the support, you know, anything to support that. I think what we, uh, what is known about the habits of wood ducks is it matters more that you're in the right spot at the right time. Right. And so I'll, I've killed wood ducks without any decoys at all. Mm-hmm. I've killed uh, wood ducks with one decoy that I've th- thrown out there on a little jerk string. And I think the, you know, p- particularly to your hunting scenario, it just matters that you are where they're going to be on that morning. Right. right? And so hunting wood ducks is, you know, you just, you have to do the scouting and find where, where they go in the mornings. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're going to be there whether or not you're there. Right. right. And so the use of decoys probably is more for, you know, if you have a little wood duck hole and you're on one side of it and can't quite reach the other, well, the decoys would bring, bring the ducks to your side of it mm-hmm. is, is probably a more, more accurate statement. You know, uh, the, the larger you, so small, small lakes or, or, you know, obviously our decoys probably aren't used in, in field hunting scenarios for mallards and those sorts of things, but just your, your more traditional, you know, on the bank of a, a body of water mm-hmm. and parked in the reeds. Um, again, you know, our decoys, the advantage of, that it's going to provide you is a steadier ride in the water. Yeah. There is, you know, you might think that, oh, well, they're heavier, so they won't move in the wind. That's that's not at all the case. You know, there's numerous videos uh, that we've posted of, of the decoys moving in, in the slightest of breeze. Um, the, really, the advantage is, is, of our decoy is, is that you don't get in those scenarios, especially uh, on the quieter puddle duck, traditional puddle duck hunting uh, scenarios that you don't get that slap of the tiny little ripples of the water slapping up against the, the decoys. Right. Um, you know, that's, you don't get that massive head bob because they're just, they ride mm-hmm. more stable in the water. And most importantly though, you are by, by painting the decoys, those things that you have out in front of you, you are directly connected mm-hmm. to your experience on that day. And, and so the sort of the phrase that you might use is, you know, do more than just show up, be, be a participant, be a stakeholder in the process. And and by the process, I don't mean everything, you know, it's almost like I walked out and, and every, everything had been set out for me and I'm just ready to go. No, the process starts when duck season ends the year before that's when the process begins. So invest yourself in that process in when you're out there, 
in, you know, you set your decoys, it's 10 minutes before shooting light, you're having your coffee, maybe the bacon's sizzling, you know, understand that to get to this moment in time, all of those, you know, those hours in the shop, uh, painting, rigging, talking about it, thinking about it, you know, the nice part about painting your own decoys is it really, it extends the duck season to the other 305 days out of the year. It really does. Like, it does. It does. Yeah. You know, yeah. uh, and if particularly in foam decoys, if you're painting themselves and you're using oil-based paints, like we encourage, you know, this is not something that you want to paint on a Friday night and try and take them out there on Saturday morning and, right. and hunt with them. Right. <laughs> you know, and because this is also an oil-based paint too, correct? Well, there. You know, we we uh, we've partnered with Parker Quality Coatings, and obviously the Parker name is mm-hmm. is well known in the waterfowl world. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so we've partnered with them to come up with ten specific colors just for our decoys, in addition to some that, that they have, uh, and we've put them into, you know, easily packaged kits, uh, where you can go on the website and, okay, I want to paint a Mallard Drake, bam, Mallard Drake. And you can buy it either in a kit to do, you know, three to six decoys or, uh, one to do two dozen and everything. You don't, you don't have to think about the, the paint pattern. There's a, there's a easily, you know, easily distinguishable. It's basically like paint by the numbers, right? Mm -hmm. There's the picture and it's got the numbers on it. You just apply the paint how, how it's represented if that's what you want to do. Right. Uh, and then the kit itself is you don't have to worry about, you know, individually assembling the colors and what do I want for the body and what do I want for the breasts and what do I want for the speculum? No, it's all there. Right. You are, you are painting Keith Hendrickson's uh, vision is, right. is what you're doing. Right. Right. And that, and I, I think that's good, um, you know, to have for somebody like me, you know, the Georgia duck season is terribly short. I mean, it's, I think it might be a couple of months and that's it. I mean, it's, it's really short. So for me, um, and then also, you know, we're not known for having a whole bunch of mallards here and, you know, like this ain't no Arkansas hunt. So there, there has to be, um, more into it. Now, something you also said, um, you know, my last thing as far as functionality and things like that, and then I kind of want to get in your dogs, but one thing that you told me that I thought was really interesting that I did not know Ducks can actually hear that water bouncing off of a plastic decoy from like farther away. Yeah, well, it, it's yeah, it's it's not just the ducks; it's you as well. Uh, but you can, you know, the 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 idea is that you uh, a a hollow plastic spread and a little bit of chop. You're going to hear that decoy spread before you can see it, especially if you know if you're a duck flying over or, or around and and there's you know parked in the middle of some trees or something like that. You know the, those. The, the it's just it's very loud uh i, I the, those people that that i'm speaking to right now they will know exactly what i'm talking about you may not have experienced something like that tucked in a tight little wood duck you know swamp mm-hmm. um but but if you get out and do a little bit of water and you got you know six dozen plastic decoys out there and a tiny bit of chop it it almost sounds you know when you're you're in your bass boat fishing yeah uh in july and you can hear the water lapping up the side against the boat okay so it sounds like yeah. kind of like that okay yeah, yeah. Okay. But multiply that times six dozen decoys. Yeah, I I've never experienced that. Um, you know, the only other thing that I've shot other than a wood duck is a redhead out in Kansas, and you know that's a totally different experience um, in and of itself. So, you know, as far as the Dixie decoys and, and you using them, you know what 
what type of uh, decoys are you using out in the Carolinas? Like specifically, what 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 are you taking out with you on a good day? Yeah, so like a, a hunting hunting something like the Pamlico Sound, uh, which is generally that's a that's a massive massive body of water. Um, you know, th- there's something about th- that those those sounds right there. So Kurtuk Sound down in Pamlico Sound down in the Core Sound, like. Uh, if you said core sound, the synonymous bird of that is it, most people from that area are probably going to say redhead, right? There's something dreamy. There's something idealistic about a core sound redhead. Um, generally in, in that area though, it's, it's people, you know, so you might hear it called bluebill or scop. Some people call them broadbills in that area. They're called blackheads. So, uh, you know, our, our decoy rig would be very heavily leveraged to blackheads uh, with canvasbacks, and the idea is a lot of white okay. uh, because it is a massive, massive body of water. Um, some people, you know, sea duck hunting in that area is very, very big as well. So, one of our guides that we have on staff puts out just, uh, you know, and it's not really all that many. Probably, I think he, he has like three dozen scoter decoys, which is just basically black with a tiny bit of orange on there for for your common scoters and maybe a few skunk heads, and then he, he'll put like twelve blackheads out and and for that little bit of white and and that's it but um there are people get silly with decoy rigs out on that big water man when you got you know putting a layout boat out there and uh you know one of our customers he's got the 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 probably the largest rig of of dixie decoys you know he's i think he's at close to 200 um, that that he's got out there on 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 long lines or some people might call those gang rigs. Mm-hmm. And then of course, you know, the, the, the idea of the net rig, uh, which has been, you know, a company has sort of professionalized that, but that concept of taking a shrimp net and, and putting dozens of decoys on that and then rolling it out, as like a mat. Um, that, that was born in, as far as I understand, that was born in, in Eastern North Carolina as well. And so that's a popular tactic and all this, you know, so it's just, um, th- those get, it gets pretty silly. Some people yeah. might call it silly, but uh, I think most people from around where we're hunting, it would, it's just sort of required, right? It's just, right. it's just what you do. Well, you, yeah, you, you adapt to the need and, and you, and your surroundings. Um, I think that's pretty cool, man. So now, you know, off the form and function, I think we got, you know, I, I, I don't want to forget the dogs because you are also an avid, avid, avid upland upland hunter um so so talk about your dogs and, and and your history in the uplands we can't leave that out yeah like i said we grew up small game uh squirrel rabbit and the odd quail and, and every once in a while we get on a preserve and chase a pheasant and stuff um my family always had uh not my specific family but my grandfather um and my father when he was a child they always had pointers um and uh, the odd setter uh, uh, every so often um, so the, the, the sort of the gun dog, upland gun dog legacy runs strong in, in my blood. And, um, and when I sort of got out on my own, it was time for me to get my own, my, my first dog. Uh, I, I was dead set on a pointer and I, your, your pointer's called Vegas, I think. Yes, sir. Yeah. I've seen some, some videos and, and for the exact reason that uh, I ended up not getting a pointer. It seems like your your dog strongly um, exemplifies those things, and it's just like such a very strong willed dog, and yeah. just like a hunting 
machine, just <laughs> an absolute programmed robot. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> which is fantastic, fantastic. I think I wanted something a little bit uh, more at ease. Yeah. So I yeah. went with uh, uh, my first sort of dog on my own uh, was and, and still is an English setter. Mm-hmm. His name is Rudy. Um I got him from a, a breeder in Virginia. He is not uh, a Llewellyn. He is not a Ryman. He's more of that uh, traditional American setter. So he's a bit smaller. The feathering mm-hmm. uh, on the backs of his legs isn't, you know, it, it's a bit shorter. Of course, he doesn't have that, the, 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 the table, table dog English setter, like the, where the feathering goes all the way down to the floor. It's not like that. Right. Um, but you know, he gets that flag called the flag when his tail goes up, uh, and and that the, that feathering coming off of his tail, I just there's something so beautiful about it. Um, so Rudy was my first, and then I got Duke, who uh, was my German Shorthair Pointer, and uh, we actually we unfortunately just lost Duke unexpectedly a couple months ago. Um, while, while we're in Australia, my my mother my mother took uh, Rudy and my brother in law and business partner. Uh, in Dixie decoys, he took, uh, he took Duke. Um, and unfortunately Duke had a, a mask growing inside of him that nobody knew about and oh, yeah. it unexpectedly burst and, uh, he just wasn't going to make it through that. So we had to make that t- tough decision. And I, I, you know, just in case Brandon listens to this, just publicly thank him for his, his courage and compassion through that, because, uh, I, I'm almost, I feel so bad that I had to ask another person mm-hmm. to, to, to be there, but our entire family now. So, uh, my wife, uh, this sort of this this side of the family, my wife's side of the family. So my brother-in-law, my, my, uh, father and mother-in-law, and then, uh, my wife's sister, everybody's a dog family, right? So we all have two dogs. Mm -hmm. Um, we all get together. So you're talking four families in a house. Plus everybody's got two dogs, (laughs) brother. We, and they're all gun dogs, right? Yeah. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> my English setter, German shorthair. Brandon has two Ryman setters, which are just gorgeous. Yeah. Um, Big leggy then, dogs, too. Yep. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Very tall. Mm-hmm. Um, and then. Uh, and then two labs. Uh, you get us all together. We are just a big dog pack. Yeah. Right? Like you cease to become a person when we're all together. <laughs> it's just everybody's rolling around and fighting with the dogs. And yeah, and we love it. And, and so the loss of Duke was like, it was really a loss of our, of our pack. And he, he occupied a very particular spot mm-hmm. in a very particular role. And that his job was just to be the dog that pissed you off. Yeah. All of the time. <laughs> I, I know a couple of dogs like that. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. And you know, and it's like, Oh, this dog just never quits and, and mm-hmm. always doing this or whatever. But now that he's gone, you realize that that served a purpose in your pack. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Well, it, it's, uh, and- it's a family member. I mean, everybody has their own personality and, you know, I, 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 I want to give my condolences first and foremost. Um, oh, thank you. Thank you, you know, seriously, I, I can, I could only imagine a surprise like that. And, and what do you do about that? Um, but personality wise, man, that's one of them German dogs, man. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, he, he was, he was fantastic, but I, you know, I have to make it clear that. So I got both of these dogs with great aspirations to do the training on my own. Mm-hmm. Um, I had never trained a dog before, but I did the research and, and watched the videos and read the books mm-hmm. and started in both of these dogs. Very, very, very promising, probably never going to compete with them just cause I, I just, 
unfamiliar with that process anyway, but they would, the idea was just to have great family dogs that I could take and get a point out of every once in a while. Right. Uh, and both on the right track. Uh, and then it just so happened that sort of, uh, in my Marine Corps career, that's when uh, I, I got very intense into having to do a, a so when I transitioned from being enlisted to officer and so a lot of training going on, which took me away from home and then I got deployed. So right in that, you know, that two to three year old dog, uh, when you're really making your money, it, I, I just wasn't around. Yeah. And so what we ended up with was dogs that looked great when they pointed shadows and leaves <laughs> and tennis balls. <laughs> and, uh, they looked so good on that. Yeah. Um, yeah. But they are probably probably pretty worthless bird dogs when it when it came down to it. But we took them out every once in a while hunting and look a win and I argue probably people even with, with legitimate trained bird dogs, this is you know, this is probably a win for them too. But a win for us was, man, if I could get one point out of them. Oh, it's always just, a win. Yeah, just like one to see him do their thing. And you know, like you know in that tail, there's just happy dog tail. Mm-hmm. And they're running around like, oh, we're just in the woods playing. And so, oh, what does that smell? Right. What is that? Yep. And the tail changes, right? Yep. The, the, the wag gets a little it gets a little tighter and, uh-huh. and a little faster mm-hmm. and they get birdie, right? Yeah. And just to be able to watch them turn into that that hunting dog, that's all I needed, man. All well, I needed. I mean, man, look, it's, it's about going back to what we were saying earlier. It's about the process, man. I mean, this will be... My dog, this will be Ruger. My lab is hell, third, fourth season, something like that. But Vegas, you know, we've been working since I got him, and he, he's a machine of a little dude now. But I mean, he he is a, a very, like you said, strong willed dog, likes to work. You have to work him because of what he is. But I mean, we're we're starting off strong, you know, in the grouse woods up, matter of fact, in North Carolina next. Next week, I think it's next week, and then right after that, heading right on down to Thomasville um, for the quail opener, Thomasville, Georgia. So even if I was telling my wife, if I don't get nothing but one point out of this dog, you know, just one, one good one, you know, I just want to feel that Garmin uh, system just buzz in my hand and, and let me know that that dog is on point, you know, 200 yards away. Oh, absolutely. I mean, yeah. what else, you know, what else can you ask for now? You know, and, and it, as far as what I want this dog out of, I'm hoping he will become a very good trial dog. But we got to hit the wild bird woods first to even see that and to see the potential, you know. So, oh, yeah. man, it's always a win when you get when you get that one special moment out of a, out of a dog. Right. Like when they just piece the puzzle together. It, it's. It's like, again, I'm not a golfer, uh, but as has been told to me when I do, and what I do is not called golf. I, it's probably more <laughs> akin to uh, hitting a small white ball with a metal stick. Uh, it's ba- it, baseball it's on one, the ground. <laughs> yeah, it's that one shot that keeps you coming back. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that you're like, you know what? I, I might could get back out there and do that. And, and so really it's, the, the hot summers, the frustration, uh, and then when it comes together and you, and you see that tail, you know, get birdie and then lock up and, and you get that one point, you're like, all right, 
Yeah. Uh, I guess, I guess we can keep doing this. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and, and, and for duck dogs, it would be the same, you mm-hmm. know, all of that. Um, in fact, we, we just came out with a t-shirt and called it the retrieve and it's sort of emblematic of, Oh, I love it. I love it. I saw it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that final moment that is, that's just but one moment in, in the entire buildup, right? Everything that it took to get to that moment where that dog comes back and he's got that stud redhead in his mouth Mm -hmm. looking at you like, did I do it, dad? You Mm -hmm. know? Um, yeah, it's, it's. That's what it's all about. Mm-hmm. So let me tell you, and, and I want you to talk about Waterman Sporting Company, but that specific T-shirt, let me tell you why that T-shirt was so special to me, okay? I mean, to a T, all right? That T-shirt is exactly my dog's first bird in his mouth, um, minus a quail. In Kansas, that was my dog's first, like, uh, duck experience freezing cold in Kansas early morning oddly there were no birds coming like and, and you don't expect that out of Kansas and then we started seeing ducks just flying over flying over hovering doing a little circle thing right um and we see it was me and my buddy Eric and um we uh we see two redheads, I mean, flying right next to each other, straight line like they do. I got a yellow lab. My buddy's got his Chesapeake Bay Retriever. Boom, boom. Bird falls. Now, my buddy Eric's dog was grown, (laughs) so he beat him to the bird. Um, But, of course, I let mine go ahead and break and just try to, you know, nose around with him. Um, as his dog was was bringing the retrieve back, you know, just to kind of get a hold of it. But what I saw in that dog was the light bulb click on. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. so that that particular T shirt, I want to get it from you. I want to purchase it um, because that is the exact like I have the photo of the bird and everything. Like it's when I saw it, I was like, oh man, you read my mind. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. And oh. that, yeah. Like it, it's important that moment when you, cause they, they could, the dogs come with all of the tools inside of them, right? Like mm-hmm. they, it, it's, it's an all inclusive package. Mm-hmm. It's all in there. Yep. All you're doing is just showing them that it's in there in that moment when they're like, Oh, look at all these tools. I, I didn't even know these were here. Right. Look at all this. <laughs> this is also, oh, this is what, how you do it. You know? Yeah. And it's like, it, it's, the appreciation that you get about them finally realizing what it is they're supposed to do. Right. Right. I mean, it, it's, it's beautiful. So I'm going to get that, uh, in long sleeve very soon, but talk about, uh, Waterman sporting company as, as another aspect of, of Dixie decoys. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, Dixie decoys started, uh, not with our current decoys. Obviously I was making foam decoys myself. It just sort of became popular. Mm-hmm. And then, um, uh, so Brandon and I sort of started to turn that into a bit of a business. Uh, and then the idea was, well, let's, let's try to get, we were using a very popular mold that sort of every, everybody who's making foam decoys themselves was using, well, let's, let's look into a decoy that would be our own. All right. So you start asking around and then we find Keith Hendrickson and that's where this idea because of Keith is really into, you know, his, his contemporary antiques, it just sort of clicks of let's let's do this this new old decoy um so the decoys start 
and and that's that's the company, right? Dixie Decoys. Well, mm-hmm. well, let's you know, let's just do a hat here and T-shirt there and, and see what happens. And, and people love it, you know, just the very into the apparel um, because of our message. Uh, you know, people are are buying the the apparel because of of the message of the company. So then, well, what do we do? Uh, how, how do we expand that in, in a sort of that sporting lifestyle? Not maybe not just waterfowl hunting. Certainly, that's the uh, emphasis. But that sporting lifestyle and something that's emblematic of our entire approach, right? That, that maybe doesn't even have to do with hunting, but just sort of this appreciation for the classics. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so Waterman Sporting Company is born as the apparel brand of Dixie Decoys um, to to provide an opportunity to people who, uh, again, going back to my point that our decoys aren't, nor should they be the perfect decoy, uh, for everybody, but people who may not, may not, you know, find our decoys as the right fit for them certainly associate with our message and the, the apparel provides them an opportunity to sort of represent that message, mm-hmm. uh, you know, manifestly in, in, you know, uh, in their, their personal lives, um, what you put on your body, you're putting there with a purpose in most cases. That's why people choose to wear a t-shirt that has, you know, X, Y, or Z on it. Right. Mm -hmm. So you are, whether you know it or not, you are making a statement about your, your background and your beliefs. That's why people wear branded apparel. And so, you know, we encourage people to understand that their choice to buy our apparel, you're making a bold statement. You really are. And, and you're saying that you uh, you support you know traditional values in in the sporting pursuit, and so the Waterman Sporting Company evolves, and, and you will continue to see it evolve that brand away from sort of the what I call the name only waterfowl companies, where it's you know uh, Durrell Waterfowl, you know you just come up with a name and a logo and put it on a Richardson hat, and bam, well, you got a you got a apparel company, mm-hmm. you got a waterfowl company. You'll see us continue to move away from that as we already have and more into what, what I would call durable apparel. So things that you could hunt with, uh, but also wear casually. Yep. So like our, our new South Creek vest, we'll be releasing a, a sort of what you would call an old school camo pullover. That's another topic we can talk about, the history of what, what people call old school or duck camo. It's a fascinating, fascinating history. Um, so a polo that, some so, some button-down shirts and sort of the English style of, of Tattersall field wear. Mm-hmm. Um, these sorts of things that, that again, take that that traditional approach but apply. It's, it's all in modern materials. That's the biggest complaint that people have of, of wearing, you know, duck canvas or wax cotton is like, great, love it, really heavy, and it still gets wet. Well, our approach will be to give you those classic styles, but in modern fabrics that provide you just like the decoys, every advantage that you expect today. Yep. 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 Man, that's cool. I mean, there's there's just so many components to what you got going on and so much craft that goes in it too. So there is, but what's important is it's all rooted in the same mission, right? So we, uh, part of it would be, uh, I have to imagine my, you know, my life as a Marine, uh, but I'm, I, and, and by extension, our organization are mission focused. We are mission oriented. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you've ever heard of an author called, uh, he's a bit of a philosopher as well, called Simon Sinek. Uh, he wrote this book called start with why. Yeah. I I own that book. 
brother, I am, you know, I am such a fanboy. It's uh-huh. like, it's so like almost a sycophant. It's yeah. just, <laughs> it's a good uh, book. I, I take it so literally cause the concept is so beautiful in its simplicity and, and applicability. Mm-hmm. Um, so we took a start with why, like what is the why behind Dixie decoys? And we wrote a mission statement and our mission statement is public published on the website. And it's to be a disruptive force that restores the rich soul of the waterfowling tradition. And, mm-hmm. and so that extends itself into the sort of the slogan of Waterman sporting company, which is for the soul of the sport. Yeah. Um, so we, we start with this belief uh, of not, not that there's a, a really a pathology. I don't, I don't mean to presume that, that something is wrong, but I think there's an opportunity that, you know, to reestablish a, a connection to the, the traditions of our past. So that's our why. Mm-hmm. Our how is by taking, you know, our, our how is, is our staff, which are, they're just so fantastic. I just can't say enough positive things about the people that have committed themselves in their personal and, and even their professional lives mm-hmm. to sort of devote themselves to our mission. And, and that is by living the ethos of, of Dixie decoys in their sporting lives and, and being change agents for good, being representatives of a positive sporting tradition. Right. So mm-hmm. that's, that's things like not doing bill in the barrel picks and, and, you know, conducting themselves like sporting uh, ladies and gentlemen when they're afield, uh, being complimentary of, of even our competitors, uh, you know, doing things that, that says there is a, there is a traditional, you know, gentlemanly way of, of conducting yourselves uh, in these sporting traditions and, and they live it. Right. Yep. So that's, that's our, how and our, what are the decoys, right? The, the, what is the tangible manifestation of, of our, of our why. And, right. and so the, the, what di- directly connects you with that, that sort of the soul of our waterfowling tradition, that's the, what, and that's the decoys. That's the traditional apparel. Yep. Um, so everything is nicely related and, and, and it's sort of this, uh, symbiotic relationship that flows in and out of, of the different rings of Simon Sinek circle. Again, I don't, I don't want to take credit for it. It's not my idea, but I certainly, we apply it, uh, in, in our organization and we live it. Right. Right. No, I, I think that the fact that you even brought that book up, um, and I mean, it's been a minute since I've read it, but it it stays on my bookshelf for that reason. Um, it really defines a lot of what you do, what I do. I mean, it's directly applicable to everything we as hunters do, you know, and we as, as bird dog guys do, you know, start with a why. Um, I've, I've never been interested in the mounds of, of, of birds on the back of the tailgate photo. You know, that, that famous photo that we, you know, see every season and so on and so forth, because it doesn't, to me, they're, 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 it, that photo doesn't tell me why. You know, that photo shows the end result of something that may or may not be a very, very, very unique and and good experience. The why I, you know, I want to see the wet, muddy dog, you know, with the coming out of the water with, you know, he's a young, wet, muddy dog coming out of the water with with a crazy looking retrieve. Right. He might be holding a duck by his neck. Well, that tells me that that dog needs to go back and, and we need to hit the field again, but he made the retrieve, right? You yeah. know, <laughs> I'm, 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 you know you, that, that's such a great, you know, the, the what 
is your picture telling. Right. And and certainly I don't I don't know your story. And I don't mean you Darrell, but you, the royal you, yeah. whoever's listening, I don't know your story, but uh the the you know, having three hundred snow geese piled up in a field, great and, and fantastically, uh, uh, you know, a needed effort. Right. Uh, understanding the, the the conservation implications, but like, what what story does that tell? And as juxtaposed against you in a lab with one wood duck, he's covered in mud. You're missing some important piece of gear. You're mm-hmm. covered in mud and torn up by brambles. Like the story behind that one wood duck what's what's that story and 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 your why behind that picture you know your why was was a commitment uh to to this uh, this noble pursuit um a commitment to this memory that you you put yourself through this and another why might be because i'm gonna get mad likes on this on instagram bro (laughs) yeah Yeah. yeah. So there's, it's very difficult. I don't want to, you know, because to sit here and make value judgments is you you become part of the problem, right? Yeah. Uh, But there is, there is obviously, there is obviously different approaches and different whys. Mm -hmm. And and people can have those different whys, right? Our belief, just ours, uh, is is that, uh, you know, our why is a preservation of, of tradition. Mm-hmm. That's that's why we continue to do things. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, you said that um, so perfectly, you know, um, and, and I wanted to tell you something uh, very cool that just came in the mail and then we kind of wrap it up because I want to talk about, um, you know, your films, uh, Dixie Down Under, but I, I you might find it kind of cool. I'll have to send you the photo. I just got in the mail. Um, I, you know, Craig Koshik, he's a big time historic historian in the bird dog world and, and, and now has become a very, uh, you know, good friend of mine. He's up in Canada. So he sent me this photo of this, the, a photo of a photo, matter of fact, of um, a champion field trial setter from 1901 by the name of Sue. Um, S-I-O-U-X, um, champion field trial and pointing a, 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 a bevy, quote unquote, you should tell you how, how long ago that was pointing a bevy of quail, right? Mm. <laughs> this photo, it's a stereoscope 3D photograph from 1901. And it is the coolest thing in the world to just look at and have in my hand. Um, just. You know, the story that went around that, you know, I've been kind of trying to dissect this photo um, and just figure out, you know, who the guy is. My buddy, um, Paul Cook, he gave me the name of the handler in that photo and in in the photo. Um, But I just really want to know what was going on at the time. And so now I've got to go get this um, antique vintage uh 3d viewer from back then it's the only thing that would work and it turns the photo into something really really cool you know it's things like that that i, I just kind of find interesting you know yeah absolutely and, and I'm, I'm glad you brought up photos if i could just talk about this yeah real quick. the photos and stories and what story is your uh photo telling and and i think there's implications in, in how we conduct ourselves in the public space so read social media mm-hmm. uh you know 
I have a saying that, that we, we put out there every once in a while. It's honor the hunt, honor the harvest. Mm-hmm. And, and so, for example, there was this picture of a, a very popular uh, outfitter in, in Kansas, a, a whitetail outfitter. And it was a picture of this beautiful, beautiful 12-point buck. But he had taken the, the, the front leg of, of the buck and, and stuck it in the antlers. And he asked some question, something like, who, who appreciates, you know, uh, velvet bucks or something like that. And then it, the picture, the, obviously the implication was the buck was raising its hand. Right. And, and I just wonder, like, you know, obviously this individual, like, congratulations on your trophy accomplishment. And you should feel good about all those hours that you put in managing your, your deer herd and managing your property and, uh, and all of the research that you do. And you, and you're, you're obviously technically proficient with, with your weapon of choice. Like feel good in that. You should be proud of that. Think about the life journey and, and the effort, the natural effort that it took to get that buck to that place in time with that, that rack on it, right? Like think about all of the energy, all of the animals that had to die to then die again, to be, to, you know, to, to, to turn to dust, as the Bible says, to then re-energize the earth, to produce mm-hmm. the trees that produce, you know, produce the food, the acorns that, that, that buck ate. Think about everything that went into that to get to that that buck to that place in that moment in time for you to, to harvest that that animal in, in, in that beautiful beautiful specimen. Does that picture that you took and and your and your you know the, the message that you're giving does that sufficiently represent the totality of that story? I would just ask people before they 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 sort of you know. disrespect maybe might be the word you know the 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 animal that does the picture that you might think get you know mad likes bro does Mm -hmm. that is that the story that you want to tell right think you're not i argue you're not giving yourself even yourself let, let alone the animal you're not giving yourself enough credit by showing that image and, and, and portraying it in such a way right. you're, you're discrediting all of the sacrifice that you had to put in to get to that point. Now, I don't want to, I don't want to make value judgments and say that you're doing it wrong. Cause I don't believe there's a right or a wrong. And I don't think that we should get down on people for, you know, shooting spike bucks or, or shooting, you know, not shooting a limit of just greenhead mallards. Right. I think that, that's wrong. Right. But think about, I would just ask people to think about, do you think for yourself, you're giving yourself and your hunting tradition and your heritage, everything that, that comes together to make this story happen at this moment in time, do you think you're giving that enough credit by, you know, putting the bill in the barrel or, or you know, standing behind a stack of ducks of, of 40 ducks? Obviously, you only took six of those, you know. Uh, or just generally disrespecting the animal. Mm-hmm. Like, do, are you giving yourself enough credit? And, and what's more, we are, whether you realize it or not, and this is something that's became abundantly clear to me, probably a good segue into Dixie Down Under, is what we're up against as hunters, right? Yep. We are not, uh, we are tolerated, if you will. Um, I don't think that public support 
uh, I don't think the public is against us. It's probably just tolerated. And that's what the, the Victorian duck hunters are dealing with. It's just tolerated, right? It's just like, well, it doesn't bug me, so I don't really care about it. But there's this small, very vocal and very impassioned group of people who wish to take that away from you. Mm-hmm. And and do you think by posting pictures of uh, an animal with its, its hands stuck up in its antlers when it's dead or you biting the head off of, of a decoy, whether you're Phil Robertson or not, I'm not saying it's, it's right and wrong, whoever did it. Do, do you think that, that that's giving – you know, th- that's representing the community that you wish to preserve, right? right? And simply making the argument of, well, I can do what I want because America, like, technically you are correct. Thank you. And, and I appreciate your belief. Unfortunately, the people that wish to take this right to you don't speak America, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so are you representing your tradition, your journey, and your community sufficiently by how you've pr- portrayed that in the public sphere. Right. Right. Well, and I, I think it's important that, um, that you bring that up, you know, and I, I will give a shout out to, um, two folks that I, I do a lot with, um, project upland and Orvis, right. Um, both of which Reed Bryant, he's a, a fantastic storyteller and he, in terms of the picture, paints a very, very, very vivid picture through his writing and things like that, that I think helps push the tradition and history forward when we have situations where you get the guy, well, I can take a picture of whatever I want. Well, you know, they're, they're the, the, the folks that are counteracting that, you know, AJ DeRosa and Chet Hervey and all, and, and Nick Larson, all the guys of, of Project Upland, you know, and all of us writers that write for them, we are not only taking photographs, but making film that hopefully continue to speak to what you're talking about, you know, and, and, and managing, you know, being stewards of the content that's being put out. I mean, seriously. This sort of high quality storytelling vice kill, kill, kill them all. It shows what we, what we all, whether your approach is, you know, you know, let's kill as many as we can. I think we all agree we want to preserve the tradition. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Project Upland in, in particular and some of what we've tried to do with our videos is, is be storytellers. And it portrays the pursuit as an art, yes. which it is. It is. Yep. So, you know, it, it, the perceptions from people who are otherwise uneducated on the matter might be different depending right. upon how they – or what media they consume, mm-hmm. and I'm not saying that everybody needs to go out and make uh, high, you know high quality, well produced, you know, uh, six to seven minute document. That's not what I'm saying at all. But you certainly doesn't cost you anything to not be disrespectful. Right, it costs you nothing. Right, it, it it doesn't cost you anything. But on the flip side, the wrong image can cost you everything. That's right. You know, it it and it's so important you know, to do what, you know, to, to do what we have to do. I'm a big proponent of, you know, hunting in the South and, and, and quail hunting and, and the history that goes with African-American, you know, bird dog handlers down here. That's been a big thing for me because it's, it's part of a culture that obviously is my culture, but I, I found, you know, kind of a, a home in that. Right. And I'm very careful about, how that's portrayed 
Oh, absolutely. You see what I'm saying? Like, because number one, that history up until recently, like there is no literature on it. Number one, I'm, I'm actively trying to write the literature for, you know, us black folks and, and, and really get it out there. But without there being any kind of clarity, man, no, you know, it can get misconstrued real quick. You know, even, you know, I'll go so far as the to be nuanced. Even the photos of Vegas, <laughs> like the way that that dog can can be portrayed. It can, it, it's a very sensitive thing. It's a, it, and the way that Ruger can be portrayed is a very the way that I, you know, portray myself. In an, in an image. I mean, all of these things I just really want to stay on top of and capitalize and, and be a steward of um, because there are those that don't hunt, don't understand and are not going to take the extra step to under to 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 really understand what's going on. You know, there's all kinds of history books out there and I can talk about it all the time, but those folks aren't listening to this podcast. You know, that's right. Those folks aren't going and spending ridiculous amounts of money to find an old book on eBay that's about half falling apart to learn about what came before. You know, like they're just seeing a photo and is like, this is bad. You know, I had a situation recently where. Um, I had reposted a photo of my buddy, Jerry, um, Jerry Impervento, phenomenal photographer. Um, he had a puppy retrieving, I think it was like a chucker or quail, something like that. It was, you know, just a puppy photo. And some, some lady, I don't know what her name was, gets on my social media and is like, what did she call me like an animal abuser? And, you know, a part of me went off. <laughs> I'm not going to say that. Like a part of me was like, uh, like it kind of grinds my gears. Cause I'm, I'm looking at it like what in the world. And then I end up going back, deleting the comment and, and responding to the lady. Hey, first of all, that was not responsible of me for me to even snap back. But what I do want to do is have a conversation with you so we can further understand each other's situations, right? That's beautiful. You that see what I'm saying? We're, we're, we're missing that just in general in society. Yeah. Like, I, I trust me, <laughs> I'm still from Atlanta. Like, I want to snap back, but I recognize that's not responsible. It still plays into exactly what this person probably was thinking. So let me backtrack and and message this person and have a and, and have a conversation. So the conversation ends up going on a little bit more. And then I told her, hey, look, now that I have your attention, let's DM each other and let's really talk about what it is. Cause she's a like an a, like a avid bird lover or something like that. And I told her, I was like, well, look, mate, have you thought about the 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 idea that I love birds just as much as you do? But in a different kind of way, in a in a very respectful way, I was like, you know, I'm out and I'm I'm I do the research, I'm studying, I actually do have books on just bird behavior and things like that because it, it not because I'm trying to go out and look and say ooh and ah, but it makes me a better hunter. 
you know, I was like, but that doesn't make me an animal abuser because I've got pigeons in my backyard and I keep, right. you know, morning doves and I keep quail or you're, they're, you're raising collard doves. Sorry. But anyway, that's beside the point. My thing is, I was like, my pigeons don't get mauled and mangled up by my dogs. Actually, my dogs don't touch them. <laughs> like, they point them. I put them out. I flush them. What do they do? They fly right back to my, my, my pigeon loft. I feed them every morning, change out the water. I feed them. I take care of them just as well as I take care of my dogs. Right. But to the, you know, and she later came up and, and was like, well, I get that, but I saw on YouTube, keywords, I saw on YouTube how somebody from a a, a very popular kennel was uh, doing some kind of like bird introduction demonstration. And the dog had basically went and had the bird and they were kind of thrown around. And it, it kind of looked irresponsible to the, probably to the general public. I understood what was going on. But, I mean, most people are not going to reach out and have that kind of conversation. And so the, it, it ended up where the lady, I was like, well, look, we're probably going to have to agree to disagree as far as how we go about these things. But at least we can have a conversation and understand why we are the way we are. I don't want to leave this conversation not understanding why you feel the way you do. And I don't have to agree on it, but I can still be responsible in the way that I, you know, that in the way that, that I handle, you know, situations like that. And in the way, and in the media that I put out there. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it, we have to be on top of that, man. Um, like you say, cause it, most people are not going to go the extra mile. You know, I've, I've got books from Ozark, Ripley, and all kinds of stuff sitting right here that are so specific to quail behavior and things like that. But, you know, the, the standard shot, bird in a dog's mouth, and so on and so forth. You know, I, I even have to deal with that with my students. You know, I'm I do a lot of sporting dog artwork and stuff, and I'll be doing it in class while they're working on their projects. And matter of fact, today I was doing this picture of um, a dove that Ruger had retrieved this season um, on the opener. I was just drawing and one of my students loved her to death. She was kind of like, well, she was like, I don't see how you do it. I couldn't be a hunter. I would just feel so sorry for these birds. She's sixth grader. But yeah. you, you see what I'm saying? And, and it's kind of like, well, how do you address that? But the, the catch is, all of my students know I'm a, I am I hunt and have bird dogs. And so they don't look at me in any kind of negative kind of way. They're act, they actually ask questions. To me, that's an opportunity to educate someone that's that young, you know, and, and take responsibility for that situation. And not right. I, I'm not trying to convince, convince the girl to get out and go buy bird dogs. But here's a little bit about what it is that I do. Somebody's watching, and how are you representing your your passion? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Well, <laughs> we just went down a long rabbit hole. 
That's good. That's what the beauty about podcasts, right? You can't have intellectual discussions in, in, on Facebook comments, right? People stop. You can't. It says, see more, dot, dot, dot. People right. Don't, people don't read that. So that's the beauty of, of podcasts. Yeah. Right. Well, and, and I mean, I just want to thank you for allowing me to elaborate. And I, I just feel like I have so much more to talk to you about. So <laughs> let's do it again, man. Let's <laughs> <laughs> seriously, I, I want to, um, I have that decoy. Um, matter of fact, I'm, I'm, I kind of take a little bit more pride because I bought your last wood duck decoy. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, that is on the way. So I want to put it to some use this season. Um, ducks should be opening up down here pretty soon. Um, I'm going to give you a call, man, and, and let's do some more, you know, chit chatting and reviewing and so on and so forth. I actually already ordered uh, the book from John Byers, too. <laughs> oh, good, good. Yeah, yeah. So I got a lot to talk to you about, man. Like you, you definitely got a, a friend in me. And, um, you know, I just want to support what you're doing, you know, in your company as best as I can and, and be a representative um, you know, of the product and tell more people, you know, I know my buddy Charlie would definitely enjoy it. So I'll introduce it to him as well. Yeah. Thank you very much. And mm-hmm. in, in providing, uh, not me, but, but Dixie decoys, our entire team. Uh, I, I am, but one inconsequential part of that, uh, our entire team, the venue to sort of, um, spread the good news, if you will, mm-hmm. uh, spread our message. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and hopefully, Hopefully this catches on. Yeah. Um, we we say join the movement, right? And we, yeah. we think that this is a this really is a movement uh, towards a, a new beginning. So I, I would ask uh, your listeners, please, you know, find us on social media uh, at Dixie Decoys on Instagram and Dixie Decoys Facebook. You can find uh, the Dixie Down Under video trilogy on YouTube or any of those those means. Um, you know, they're they're four and a half to five minutes in length, so mm-hmm. easy watches. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and watch uh, watch for the next big announcement, which is the re- release of our new Durabil decoys. So um, yeah. yeah, again, thank you very much for the opportunity to uh, to come on and, and talk a little bit about our story. All right, well, I uh, I, I can't thank you enough, Brad, ladies and gentlemen. That was an excellent podcast episode from Brad Sanders of Dixie Decoys. Um, and we will catch y'all next week. All right, guys, that's another wonderful episode of the Gundog Notebook podcast. I want to thank y'all for tuning in, listening, those who have stuck with me since episode one and those who are new to the podcast. You guys are just a pride and joy to do this content for. And I also want to thank Dixie Decoys and Brad Sanders for getting on here and chatting with me a good bit. Um, also, Thomasville Center for the Arts and Tom Magazine. Um, guys, if you want to see that 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 article in the magazine and, and can't get a hold of, get to Thomasville, Georgia, shoot me a DM and I'll also post it in the show notes if you can't find it. Um, I'll post the link to the magazine. So, in addition to that, I'm looking forward to a good start to the hunting season. I know many of you already have. So stay tuned. Again, thank y'all for listening to another episode of the Gundog Notebook Podcast.